0: Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back. Um, hey, just a reminder as we get started, this will be the last day for us for a while. We will be off the rest of this week and all of next week. And so we, we apologize. Um, Michael and I have some schedule stuff that doesn't line up. And so it's just, um, to be honest, we we just feel like we do a better job of this when we're both here at the same time. And so we'll we'll go on hold and we apologize about breaking it up like that. But that's what that's our plan. So we press on today with Exodus, move into Exodus 24. Um, I think we'll probably try to cover this chapter today. Um, again, this is not one of those places that's probably devotional. Uh, we see this, we have seen this and we will continue to see this in the book of Exodus. We saw it, I think in Genesis too. though the characters changed more often. And so maybe it was less noticeable. There are these moments built into the story where we, uh, you, everything okay? My we bad. we uh, we have these moments built into the story where w- that are kind of recommitment moments. They're kind of worship moments, and we have one of those today. God tells Moses, "Gather all the people and come and worship at a distance." This is verse, uh, verse two, verse one. There, Moses alone shall come near. Um, I'll just read bits and pieces of this. Moses came and told the people the words of the Lord. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning. He built an altar. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings. Uh, verse 6, Moses took half the blood of the offering and put it in basins, and half the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to these words. So uh, some interesting things here in terms of offering, in terms of the kind of consecration of the people. Um, This is very much a pattern of what's going to continue to happen later down the Old Testament when the Ark of the Covenant is is made, is given to the people. There is this same kind of pattern. We've seen some of this already with the idea of the blood on the doorpost, uh, and it is the blood of an offering. Interestingly enough, there is a sin offering, um, the guilt offering where the blood of a lamb is poured onto a goat, and then also... Um, from the people, the idea that it carried the sin. So the idea of sacrifice and blood, though that seems very foreign and outdated to us, is a common practice in the Old Testament, an important practice on the Old Testament. I, and I think, again, Michael, one of the things that may be curious to us, because in, in our tradition, in our faith tradition, we make such a strong case of the idea that God has come near to us, that Jesus has come to us, that we draw close to God. I mean, this is language that Christians use frequently. And yet here, we have this language of distance. We have this language of caution. Don't let the people come too close. Only Moses can come. There is this danger in treating God casually. Mm -hmm. And, And I think, you know, While that may seem foreign to us, I I think that there's something there that is a, a helpful reminder of how the people see not only their relationship with God, but how they see the holiness of God.
1: Yeah, and I think that in some ways, Clint, because of our emphasis upon the closeness of God, the long arc now, 2,000 years of Christian history where we have time and time again insisted upon this word incarnation, the theological word that describes God taking on flesh, that nearness actually being a physical nearness, that the Creator entered the created space. Because we've emphasized that and we've built our entire hope and faith upon that, we naturally have come to a place where that is our fundamental assumption. The danger of that is we come back into the Old Testament and we begin judging the Old Testament by that standard. And the reality is Jesus was not known. Jesus was not recognized by his own because of how large of a divergence his teaching was. When Jesus proclaimed that he was God, he was in effect coming Uh, And rewriting texts like this one, where we see, to your point here, Clint, that Moses alone, in verse 2, shall come near the Lord. Moses alone. Post-Jesus, post the revelation of God taking on flesh, you look in a book like Hebrews, Jesus is the ultimate high priest because of his both his offering as the priest and him himself being the offering, we as Christians believe that we too can come near the Lord. We could not make sense in our own theological tradition of Moses is the only one. But we shouldn't just pass by. I think we should take a pause and note that this is why Jesus was missed. This is why the Pharisees argued so vehemently against him. Their chief charge against him of heresy was because they were looking From this framework, from this covenantal framework, for this understanding of this reading of texts like this in the Old Testament. The second thing, and just very briefly, I want to make mention of here as we start this text, is the importance of these worshiping moments. The, the periods of time where the people of Israel pause, they reflect upon what God has done. In this case, we have the giving of this particular set of laws, this agreement of what God expects of the people as his covenantal people. And then they look ahead towards what it means to be the kind of people to be devoted to those commands, to be obedient to them. And I think it is impossible, I think it's absolutely impossible to not read this text without some level of awareness of the foreshadowing. Verse 7, the end, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And I think on its surface, Clint, this is a heartfelt expression, a genuine expression that the people desire to follow God. On the other hand, the writers and editors of Exodus, the, the the. Text that's been given to us makes it very, very clear as this story continues, how much the people struggle to be obedient. And so here, having received such specific guidelines and then to see this promise from the people at a moment of worship, a moment of encountering the goodness that God has given, they are moved to be obedient, and yet we know that they will struggle mightily to be obedient. And that's not just to criticize the Israelites. I think it is on some level to learn the spiritual lesson in our own hearts Clint, that we, too, will have mountaintop experiences where we are moved to obedience. But if we're honest, we, too, at many, many stages daily struggle to be obedient along the way.
0: Yeah, it's it's fitting, Michael, you use the word promise because promise and covenant in the Bible are the same word. It's a different translation of the same word. And it says here, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. In other words, the Israelites aren't just... You know, saying we'll try to do something and then they fail. They are making a covenant. God is offering them a covenant sealed in blood, and they are saying we'll keep this covenant. And so then they don't keep their word. Later on, they break the covenant. They don't just break good intentions, they don't just, you know, break their plans. They break a sacred agreement, a sacred bond, a promise. the The word covenant also means promise here, and so that's not to say that they're not genuine here. I I think this is, you know, in the context of worship, I believe that they mean these words, but unfortunately, um, they won't live up to them. And the Bible takes their failure to do so incredibly serious, as we will see when those stories come up.
1: Well, yeah, it takes it very seriously, Clint, and I think maybe in an even more affirming way for me, it tells it in an honest way. You know, I think one of the things about Scripture, and I've said this before, so I'll be brief, but one of the things about the scriptural witness that is most compelling to me personally is that when you read it, it includes the hard stuff when you come to tell your family story to someone, when someone asks you, you know, hey, tell me about your family, you don't lead with the whole story. You lead with the highlights, the, you know, sort of top points. And that's not necessarily being dishonest. It's just about presenting that story. But when you look at the scripture, it's not deifying these people. This isn't, the word for it would be hagiography. It's not giving people credit that they don't deserve. It tries to be very honest. Sometimes it's brutally honest about the people's inability to follow God. And ultimately, it portrays to us that while the text may seem to be about Moses, while it may seem to be about Aaron, where it may even seem to be about the people and their struggles to be faithful to God, actually, underneath all of that, these are characters playing on the stage of God's story, that this is telling God's commitment to God's people, God's thoroughgoing perseverance to bring them in to a new land, even a land that isn't deserved, even a land that God will be faithful to bring them to, despite the fact that they will fail to be obedient to the best of their intentions. That is the Old Testament preface, I think, if if the the first example, Jesus maybe comes unexpectedly, in in this way, the Old Testament, I think, prepares us for Jesus because it's fundamentally a story about grace. It's fundamentally a story about the God who shows up in that encounter each and every time, Clint, and says, you get another chance. Do it again. Wake up and be faithful to the covenant this day. So I I think that there's a beautiful tension in that. I think the text is honest in in a way that both reveals the humanity of the people and the centrality of God in this story.
0: I think that maybe in some ways something like this is less obvious in a book like Exodus, but there really is a sense in which if you read the Old Testament, it it is a kind of love story. And... um, the perspective that we see less of or maybe that seems less natural to us is it's the story, the love story of the love God has for the people. God continues to chase these people who continue to break his heart, who continue to turn away. And yet God comes even in the midst of anger, even in the aftermath of punishment, again and again to them to offer them another chance. And um it, it is easy to focus on the sinfulness and the fallenness of the people, but I think what you shouldn't miss in that context is this... um repeated effort on God's part to bring the people back to himself. And even, you know, you see that this is wonderfully woven into some of the books of the prophets where God will rail against the people with threats and, and you know, prohibitions and pronouncements. And then God will In almost poetic language, talk about how he misses them and how he weeps over them and how they've broken his heart. And I I think, you know, those two themes are brought together really well in these kind of stories. And I, I think we see some sense of it in this chapter Michael I mean we we haven't gotten to a lot we've seen some doubt we've seen some grumbling we haven't gotten to a lot of unfaithfulness or or outright yeah. disobedience right. yet and and right. yet in the midst of that we have this wonderful moment of worship and then I just want to go through the rest of the chapter very quickly I just want to highlight a couple of things Moses takes some people up the mountain with him and you know verse 11 here God did not lay hand on the chief men of the people. You might remember before it was only Moses who could come near him. Here there are some others who come. And the Lord says to Moses, come to me on the mountain and wait, and I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments. So Moses sets out with Joshua, and he tells the elders, wait here. And then verse 15 here, Moses went up the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain, The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. There's also, in verse 10, a very strange reference that under his feet, there was something like a pavement of sapphires, like the very heaven. For clearness, and so um, the 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 high dollar church word for this kind of thing in the Bible is called theophany. It, it it's when God makes a physical appearance, and it always has clouds and fire and smoke and sometimes earthquake, and it is a dramatic moment. This this is a moment where all of Israel looks to the mountain, and they know with certainty that the Lord is present and that Moses is with him. And we, we do want to note, because there's going to be a lot in between this and the next real part of the story, Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, which is not just a literal term in the Old Testament. 40 always means a period of struggle. So whenever you see 40 days and 40 nights, whether it's the rain or whether it's Jesus being tempted, it not only tells you something about the length of time, it tells you something about what's happening in that time. And we'll need to come back to this when we get to uh, about chapter 32 and we pick up the story there.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that this section of the story does for us, I think, is it disabuses us of the idea that life would be easier if our faith was all physical, if everything that we did was a direct response to the truth that we saw and that we touched. Of course, we have in the New Testament the example of uh, like Thomas who took seeing Jesus, touching Jesus to believe. Um, But I think you know, that classic Sunday school question, you know, that you ask kids, you know, what would it take for you to believe? Well, I, it'd be so much easier to believe if I could just see Jesus, if I could just touch. I think it's striking to me that here we're told that the chief men of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the people of high repute, they beheld God, and then, you know, they celebrate, they feast, at they ate and drank. This is the, the context of celebration and of fellowship. But the point here being, in seeing God, they encountered this high and beautiful moment, and yet these are the same people who are going to miss the mark substantially, not just in future books, but within this book. And there is something, I think, deeply freeing in the recognition, Clint, that as humans seeing isn't believing. And I think that you know John would make a case that we believe on the testimony of the witnesses of who Jesus was. I think as we look at a text like this, we discover that those mountaintop experiences can be powerful moments of faith formation. They can truly change our life. Let's not make any mistake about that. But simultaneously, they don't in some way undo the necessity of daily discipleship, of the belief that we live out each and every day. That is a task unto itself that demands our attention and respect. And so when we come to a text like this, I I think it's easy to read it because it's fantastical. It is spectacular. Maybe even it's one of those texts that you wish you were there for. And that's good to imagine that. On the flip side, there is a spiritual lesson, I think, in offer in stories like this one where we're reminded uh, that being there wouldn't make faith easier. Being there wouldn't make your obedience more sure. Instead, we're called to follow, and we will discover how the story plays out when we gather back together in a week and a half.
0: Yeah, I mean, to your point, Michael, Aaron is with Moses, and and Aaron is going to be a part of a pretty significant failure of the Israelites in just a, a little ways down the story. So, yeah, uh, well said. I think, you know, the the other just quick last word is these texts are good reminders of us that to us they, they kind of uh help us see the danger maybe in getting too familiar or too comfortable with the idea of God. I mean that as as God's presence is described It is awe-inspiring. It is, I'm sure for the Israelites, a little bit frightful. The idea that there's fire and there's smoke and there's power and there's glory. I I mean, I think the, what's the phrase here? Um, A devouring fire on top of the mountain. That Lest we be tempted to get too comfortable with the idea of who God is, these texts remind us hey, g- God is not something to take lightly.
1: Yeah, because mountains inspire majesty. They they lift us out of ourselves. Imagine seeing the mountain covered in smoke and fire. Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, that image is perfectly uh, said. All right, well, th- friends, thanks for being with us. Uh, we will see you when we continue the study in just a week and a half. Thanks. Mm-hmm.